It's Thursday, February 8th, and they could be the nine most important votes in this election. We start here. The Supreme Court gets ready to hear the case of Donald Trump. Who gets to decide what is engaging in insurrection? Two states have already decided his name shouldn't appear on the ballot. He's trying to convince them to put it back. Hopes were high about a potential ceasefire. He believes that it's a surrender. But has Benjamin Netanyahu snuffed out hope for hostages? And for the first time since the flames ripped through Maui. What were the challenges and how can we get better and move forward. Police describe what they got wrong. From ABC News, this is Start Here. I'm Brad Milkey. If you want a sense of how dominant Donald Trump is in the Republican nominating contest right now, consider this. Nevada held its state-run primary on Tuesday. And in a weird twist, the Nevada GOP had decided not to recognize these results. They'll only count the party-run caucus tonight. As a result, Nikki Haley ended up on the primary ballot virtually by herself. This year, Donald Trump did not sign up for the primary, which means his name will only appear on the caucus ballots. Nikki Haley still lost. None of these candidates was projected as the winner. Certainly not a good sign there for Nikki Haley. On the primary ballot, fewer Republicans marked Nikki Haley's name than none of the above. Now, if she can't pull together a significant performance in South Carolina later this month, you can't imagine her posing any threat to Trump whatsoever. But there is another threat out there, the idea that Trump won't even be allowed on some state ballots. Well, later today, the Supreme Court is expected to hear a case that will have profound implications for American elections. Let's go straight to ABC senior Washington reporter Devin Dwyer, who covers the court. Devin, what is the case here? It's hard to overstate the significance, Brad. This is the Supreme Court stepping right into the middle of the 2024 election. They will decide whether or not Donald Trump can appear on the ballot. All I want is fair. I fought really hard to get three very, very good people and they're great people, very smart people. And I just hope that they're going to be fair. This is Donald Trump's appeal today of that Colorado decision uh, that will answer the question, is he ineligible because of his efforts to overturn results uh, of the 2020 election? We will stop the steal. Colorado's highest court said he did. They said he met the bar of a 150-year-old provision of the Constitution called Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. And what it says is that anyone who previously took an oath as an officer of the United States and then engaged in insurrection cannot hold future office uh, of the United States. Trump incited a violent mob to attack our capital. In Colorado's court, in a case that was brought by a number four GOP voters and two unaffiliated voters in that state suing the state to keep them off the ballot. That mob tried to hurt and kill our elected leaders. And we are here because Trump claims, after all that, he has the right to be president again. Today, the justices will wade into that. They'll hear Trump's defense uh, that Section 3 does not apply to him. He claims he's not an officer of the United States as president. He also claims he didn't engage in insurrection. Uh, And he says that that provision of the Constitution um, cannot be enforced by each individual state. It's going to be a historic day, Brad. I mean, this is uh, a momentous question. It certainly seems like the justices would um, want to avoid the politics, want to stay out of it, let the voters decide. That's sort of the consensus view. But if they do let this decision stand, 
uh, Donald Trump could be off the ballot in Colorado and a number of other states where he's been challenged. Well, and the tricky thing here is between Colorado and you said there were other states like Maine has already said he shouldn't be on the ballot. That's all because these judges or these administrators have decided that Trump participated in an insurrection. It's not like he's been tried or convicted of that. Like, that's just something these you know people have sort of decided. Is that something the Supreme Court has to now weigh in on, whether Trump is an insurrectionist? You just zeroed in on what I think will be uh, a primary focus of the arguments today, which are expected to span uh, over three hours uh, in this historic case, and that is who gets to decide uh, what is engaging in insurrection and uh, when someone, a candidate for president, has done that. It's not spelled out in the Constitution. Uh, Now, Advocates of this uh, of this theory that Trump is disqualified say it's pretty clear cut that it's so-called self-executing, that each state can read the Constitution and say um, it's pretty plain to me that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection and therefore um, isn't eligible. Mm. Um, but the Trump team and Trump's attorneys are going to argue that it is not entirely that clear that Congress, in drafting the amendment and ratifying the amendment uh, through the states, Uh, always intended to retain the prerogative of deciding who is eligible or not eligible. And in fact, Donald Trump's team claims that Colorado is attempting to create a new qualification out of thin air for being president uh, by letting a state decide. So that's that's the contour of the debate that will take place. But you're absolutely right that um, these attorneys are going to spar over the issue of who gets to decide Is it clear in there? And that, Brad, might actually provide the justices an off-ramp from having to wade into the substance of insurrection and whether Donald Trump engaged in it. You can almost hear them being like, do not make us decide who's on the ballots from now on, right? Like Chief Justice Roberts doesn't want to be dragged into the Bush v. Gore situation. The Trump-appointed justices have to make a ruling on the guy who appointed them. The most interesting person here, Devin, though, might be Clarence Thomas. You've done reporting on what some are calling a conflict of interest with him. A big debate has been raging ahead of today's argument, Brad, and that is, does Clarence Thomas have to recuse himself from the case? And should he recuse himself uh, in the interest of impartiality? In one of many text messages that she sent after the election to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Thomas called the 2020 election the greatest heist in our history. His wife, Virginia Thomas, is a longtime conservative activist. Certainly the spouses of Supreme Court justices are allowed to have uh, their own lives, their own activities, their own views, including political ones. There's a history and a precedent for that. But she was there at the White House on January 6th. She certainly didn't participate in any violence. She did not march on the Capitol. Uh, But she was very active in trying to urge state legislators in Arizona and Wisconsin um, to overturn the results of the voters in their state. One email from Thomas reads, please take action to ensure that a clean slate of electors is chosen for our state. And those very circumstances um, are why the Colorado Supreme Court decided that Donald Trump engaged in insurrection. So there's been a pressure campaign from top Democrats urging him to recuse. He signed that new ethics code, which said that justices should avoid even the mere appearance of impropriety. Jenny Thomas testified before Congress that she has a, quote, ironclad rule against talking politics or cases with her husband. But I talked to a number of legal, judicial ethicists, Brad, and almost to a T, there is a consensus that this conduct by Jenny Thomas uh, is a clear case for recusal. This is the easiest recusal analysis case you could ever imagine. No doubt. No doubt. James Sample, uh, a professor of Hofstra Law who's written a book on judicial ethics, said, The question is, 
if your spouse were potentially going to be implicated in a severe criminal activity and you are defining whether or not that activity was or was not criminal, how would you come out? We expect Thomas will be on the bench today, Brad. He's given no indication he's ready to recuse. He did not respond to our request for comment. <laughs> he does not have to explain his decision either way. But we talked to a number of former Thomas clerks and allies who are connected with the justice, uh, and they are insistent that this is all a political ploy uh, and that from what they know about Clarence Thomas, he's not going anywhere in this case. That is something to keep an eye on. And I know you will be in the courtroom today, Devin. We're not expecting the justices to make a ruling from the bench, but this has to happen soon, right? Within days or weeks, not months, because the Colorado primary is, wait for it, March 5th, less than a month away. So things got to move here. Devin Dwyer, thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Next up on Start Here, Israel tosses out a potential ceasefire deal, and now the U.S. has launched another airstrike. We'll take you to the Mideast after the break. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the campaign throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S. military conducted an airstrike in Iraq last night, hitting the leader of a group that reportedly killed American service members in Jordan. And all of this comes as Israel and Hamas discuss a potential ceasefire with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken there on the ground. ABC's foreign correspondent James Longman is in Tel Aviv, Israel right now. James, let's talk about this American strike first. Who is the target here? Yeah, quite a daring strike, Brad, because they struck in Baghdad, the capital of Iraq. This isn't in the border zone. This isn't in some rural area. Uh, this was going after uh, what sounds like quite a senior leader. His name is Abu Bakr al-Sadi, uh, and he was a leader of Qatayb Hezbollah, which is part of the popular mobilization forces. Uh, that's a paramilitary group, uh, which part of the kind of security structure in Iraq. But crucially, this is one of the groups that receives funding from Iran. Uh, we know that two other people who were escorting him were also killed in this attack. Uh, and look, this is part of uh, the wider response that the White House promised after their initial airstrikes uh, following that attack on uh, that base that killed uh, three U.S. service personnel. They said they were going to uh, carry out attacks at a time and places of their choosing. 
this is just one of those moments. But we have to be careful. You know, we've been reporting the last few weeks. It's an incredibly tense time in this region. Uh, there are ongoing ceasefire negotiations here in Israel. Uh, there's trouble on the border in the north with Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, and they don't want to set a wider war off. Uh, but this, it seems, was incredibly targeted. One individual killed along with uh, two people escorting him. Well, and so if that's an example of the U.S. continuing its counteroffensive in the middle of everything that's happening in the Middle East. Can we talk about Israel continuing its war that has sort of, you know, created this whole whole landscape? There have been talks about a larger deal between Israel and Hamas. Uh, Hamas made a big counteroffer that was even more sweeping than people were expecting. Everyone got their hopes up that we're going to see lots of hostages released, a big, long, maybe even a permanent type ceasefire. Until yesterday when the Israeli prime minister, Benjamin Netanyahu, said not a chance. He basically laughed this deal out of the room. Why? Yeah, this is big news. He completely torpedoed it on the day that Secretary of State Blinken was in town. I think perhaps the State Department hoping that Blinken could be here. Uh, when this new deal would be announced. But no, um, the prime minister has rejected it. He said he called it delusional. And basically, uh, he believes that it's a surrender. He thinks that leaving Hamas in power in Gaza is untenable. He's been saying it. It shouldn't come really necessarily as a surprise because he's been basically on the campaign trail, speaking to troops. He's been speaking publicly uh, repeatedly on television saying that he could never accept a deal which leaves Hamas in power, which causes the IDF to have to withdraw fully from Gaza and which releases large numbers of uh, prisoners from Israeli jails. So in one sense, it's not a surprise, but I think it's an incredible letdown to the many families of the hostages who were desperate for a deal uh, and spoke very powerfully. You know, there was a meeting uh, yesterday of some of the hostages who were released uh, in the first uh, round of uh, negotiations. Please, Prime Minister, if you continue on this path, there will be no more hostages to release. But look, Brad, this goes to the very centre of this entire conflict, the tension that's been running all along. Should the priority be defeat Hamas or should the priority be get the hostages out? Right. The Israelis have been trying to do both of those things in parallel, but we're coming now to kind of... Uh, a boiling point where the remaining hostages need to be gotten out, but Hamas is very unlikely to negotiate itself out of Gaza. So what do you do? Because we actually learned this week, James, right, that dozens of hostages that were taken on October 7th have died in the weeks and months since, right? So I'm, it just makes me wonder if there's not a broader deal to get them out right now. Is there any chance of something like that in the future? I'd have to imagine the likelihood of a ceasefire goes down. Secretary of State Blinken said that he saw that there was space for an agreement because he sees that uh, the prime minister here, Benjamin Netanyahu, has not closed the door on negotiations entirely, that they will carry on. Mm. Um, because, look, he's got so many different constituents to to kind of satisfy here in Israel, the prime minister. He's got the hard right who make up uh, you know, an important part of his coalition. Without them, he cannot be in power. They have threatened to remove themselves from the coalition and therefore bring the government down if he accepts the deal. But then he's got massive public support for the hostage families, a huge amount of sympathy for them. You know, Netanyahu has a lot of enemies in this country and his critics say, is he just keeping this war going for as long as he can? in order to avoid facing the music, because a lot of people hold him responsible for the security lapses that allowed October 7th to happen. Uh, so, look, it's an incredibly uh, complicated situation here, but uh, I think there are also people inside Gaza who cannot forget them, nearly, well, more now than 28,000 
uh, Gazans who've been killed in this war so far. Right. And when Prime Minister Netanyahu talks about total victory and the IDF marching towards Rafa, the last city standing in Gaza where we know hundreds of thousands have taken refuge, if the IDF does to Rafa what they have already done to Gaza City, there are a lot of people in mortal danger. So the suggestion that the IDF will not stop until they've gone through Rafa, well, that is of some concern, not least to uh, major uh, international charities who are sounding the alarm about it. Um, but you remember at the beginning of all this, they, they said that they had to find the leaders of Hamas. Abu Sinwar, the leader, he's got a number of lieutenants. None of them have been found. They're still believed to be inside Gaza. And one imagines they won't stop until they've found those men. Yeah, it sounds so intuitive to so many people around the world. Like a ceasefire seems like a good thing. And then to hear Netanyahu basically say, no, we're not committing to a larger ceasefire. That means Hamas stays intact and keeps operating and basically got what they came for when they hit Israel on October 7th. Uh, James Longman, they're in Tel Aviv right now. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Brad. It's been exactly six months since wildfires whipped across the island of Maui, consuming everything in their path, including the historic town of Lahaina. I feel 100 percent that the, that the county officials and the police and the fire department have blood on their hands. The only alerts we had were high wind warnings. And that was it. In the immediate aftermath of that devastation, whenever people spoke to us, you could hear their anger. Not just about the fire, but even about the response by local authorities. Could anything else have been done to save more lives? Well, six months later, authorities have released their first report on this, an after-action report. The people in charge actually walked ABC's Mola Lenghi through this report and through the streets of Lahaina itself. He joins us now. Mola, this is fascinating, especially because you were there covering the initial fire, right? Now you've returned. What's it like there? Yeah, but we've actually we've been back a few times over the last six months and uh, Lahaina, the, the, the small historic town that suffered the, the most significant damage. This was a nursing home. Yeah. This is a you know, senior living. Mm-hmm. Nothing left of it now. No. You know, it still looks a lot like it did in the days immediately after the fire. You know, thousands of structures, uh, we're talking about homes and businesses, you know, public, private properties, uh, still in piles of ash and rubble. You know, some are hollowed out shells of what they once were, still covered in in soot. So fire moves down here, jumps this this street here. Mm -hmm. Yes. And then... These are some of the first houses to catch fire. Yeah. So There's, you know, an official perimeter still set up around the vast burn zone. Okay, thank you. We were able to, to get in with a police detail to who kind of showed us around. If you get close enough, the burn zone, you can still smell the smoke, uh, the char, mm. the burn in the air. You know, the, the, the rebuild has not started, and this is something that officials say is, is going to take years not only to complete, but in some cases, possibly to even start. And so this after action report, that literally is what, like a report about the actions that happened after the fire initially, right? What, what What's in it? Exactly. Yeah, it's a sort of post-mortem after action uh, report by the Maui Police Department looking specifically at the police response. We have an obligation to those we lost to document what went right, what were the challenges, and how can we get better and move forward? There was a broad response throughout the county, but this report looks specifically at the police department's response 
to, like you said, what was the worst natural disaster in Hawaii's history. A review of all calls for service, including 911 emergency and non-emergency lines, that included over 4,500 calls, uh, over 20 hours of body-worn camera footage review, citizens' accounts, news, social media, and open source media. For background, the, the way this sort of response works is that police officers also respond to a fire, but their role is to evacuate people, to to coordinate the evacuation out of the, the vast danger zone, mm. you know, serving in a sort of secondary role, a support role, you could say, to the fire department, who, of course, is busy fighting the fire. So investigators determining in, in this report that a sort of perfect storm of of high winds and and quickly moving flames almost zero visibility on the ground downed power lines and utility poles uh, into roadways you know making the the few existing evacuation routes in and out of Lahaina nearly useless when you're walking in the wind and you have your cell phone can can the person on the other end of the cell phone hear everything you're saying I, i'm going to say no and so one of the things we learned was, let's get earpieces for our folks. As well as some communications and equipment problems that, that officers faced in their response. All of that complicating the response to the deadly fires. The report also noting that uh, the police department staffing was roughly 25% shy of where it should have been. So they were grossly understaffed. And, you know, of course, that, that's something that law enforcement agencies across the country have been facing for years now. So Maui police, not unique to that, but it still presented a huge challenge when they, you know, when they absolutely needed people to, to help respond. Among the report's recommendations, uh, new communication and tactical equipment for, for officers moving forward, some tactical equipment like chainsaws that will help them cut through debris, you know, fallen trees or utility poles that were blocking roadways um, that made some of these roads inaccessible. The police department, we should note, has received a lot of criticism from survivors here. I would like to help you. Yeah, and this is kind of ridiculous. We have absolutely no help. We're all walking along the poly because there's no other way for us to get out of Lahaina. Our house is all burnt down and all of everybody just passing us on by. We're dying out here. Some people actually accusing the police department of, of putting people in harm's way. Maybe if that wasn't blocked, um, we would have gotten out and not have had to jump in the water. And I, I do think about it sometimes and I... Uh, Think about especially the people who, who didn't make it out. Sending people, turning them around and sending them right back into the fires. Absolute, untrue, shameful criticism based on people with a false narrative. You know, the Maui police chief at the end of the day really defending uh, his officer's response to the fires. Those stories are completely false and everybody knows it. And shame on them for creating a sense of fear creating a sense of disinformation and attacking the lives of people that put their life on the line to save people that they've never even met. We sat down and spoke with him, the police chief crediting the police officers with improvising in real time in, in what were really, you know, unimaginable conditions. You gotta go! Uh, fire starting up again. This house is gonna catch on fire pretty soon. They have propane tanks, so I would get out now. All of this as, you know, some of these very officers had no contact with their families. That's something that, you know, that tends to get lost in some of this. You know, many of these first responders were victims themselves. Your town that you grew up in, all the people, you know, my friends live out there. 
some of my family. Some of these officers' families go back generations, and, and they lost homes and properties. Many of them lost friends in the fire. Some some even lost family members. You talked about sort of the, the anger towards the police department here. And one of the scariest things to me in this report was how quickly information could be distorted about what police or anyone was trying to do. Obviously, some of this is, the report says, rooted in fact, but some of it's not. I mean, where does the misinformation even come from? Yeah, I mean, that's just a sign of the times right now, isn't it, Brad? I mean, you know, online information spreads quickly, misinformation spreads quickly. um, And in a situation like this, where people were relying on this information uh, to potentially, you know, save their lives, it quickly got out of hand. The after action showed that there was mis, dis, and malinformation. The after action showed that you had foreign governments as well as other actors that wanted to create false narratives. It's now being investigated that potentially there was some foreign governments that may have been involved in some of this misinformation. There's investigations uh, looking into whether China and and Russia played a role in in helping uh, sort of fuel uh, some of the disinformation that we that we saw online. Laser beams, time travelers, just these ridiculous stories. And so none of that's true. Conspiracy theories really spread. And, you know, some of the troubling parts of this is that some of these conspiracy theories took on so much momentum that police officers, Maui police officers, uh, faced death threats as a result of some of this stuff. So the fallout has been uh, extreme, it's been vast, and it's it's really been concerning. Uh, yeah, because you heard about people saying, like, why won't you let me through this road? And then we found out later it was because there were, there were down power lines. Like, you would have gotten electrocuted going down that road, but to a lot of people, it looked like they were being just sent back into danger. However, this isn't the definitive report, right? This is the police talking about the police response. There will be an independent investigation that is still ongoing now. Mola Lengi, great reporting from Hawaii. Thank you so much. Thanks, Brad. Okay, one more quick break. When we come back, this reward for bees is getting some serious buzz. One last thing is next. People who disappear without a trace. Where is she? The most notorious murder cases in New York. Pure evil. And the most devious killers. There's a Hannibal Lecter feel to him. For chilling true crime stories, follow the True Crime NYC podcast wherever you listen. And one last thing, the combs are stylish, the money is sweet, which is why heists like this really sting. Last week in Central California, an almond farmer discovered that 96 beehives had been stolen from his property. Keep your eyes peeled if you see somebody loading bees onto a truck. Local officials say this is not as unusual as you might expect. It actually kind of kicks off what's become an annual tradition in these parts. Bee rustlers stealing hives and selling them to other growers elsewhere. The Fresno County Sheriff goes around telling people to be on the lookout for suspicious-looking beekeepers. This is the time of year where you should be seeing forklifts offloading hives into orchards, not necessarily putting them back onto a truck. What's different this time is beekeepers are so frustrated that the guy who just lost his hives is offering a $100,000 reward to get back hives that are probably worth 30000 on their own. So why does he feel like it's worth taking this stand? Well, it's all got to do with almonds. 
In the last two decades, the almonds trade in California has exploded. The number of trees has tripled since the turn of the century. And at this point, California is responsible for 80% of almonds on Earth. Farmers there have switched out crops like cotton and rice, which require more sought-after migrant workers in the field. Almonds just need these big machines that shake the trees. To grow, almond trees also need bees, millions of them. Almond trees are so reliant on cross-pollination that farmers will pay dearly to rent a hive. California's almond crop is now responsible for the single biggest pollination event on Earth. You just don't go buy another box and all of a sudden have a colony. I mean, it's a very extensive process. From At least to less than scrupulous beekeepers offering their services, sometimes whether they've got bees to lend you or not. When they got more orders than they can handle, that, officials say, is when thefts happen. Because of the high value of these hives and relative ruralness in remote areas that they're located, unfortunately, the thefts uh, are something that we deal with quite often. To keep their hives from getting stolen, some orchards have resorted to security cameras, GPS trackers, and now these huge rewards to dissuade would-be thieves. The guy who's offering 100 grand is hoping it's enough to make someone's lookout man turn him in or to convince a spouse to betray their honey. They gotta get that lady from TikTok who deals with bee swarms barehanded. Like, she can probably just ask the bees which hive they're from, Dr. Doolittle style, to probably answer her. Hey, some really nice reviews on Apple Podcasts in recent days. Just wanna let you know, I see you, Paha Holland, Paja Holland, who said, in this era of information overload, this podcast is well worth your time. And Tinsel Shine, who said they're here for the puns and dad jokes. How dare you, Tinsel Shine? I'm not even a dad, I'm just beekeeping age. Sometimes, hey, yeah, I wax poetic. I'm Brad Milkey. See you tomorrow. Married moms in the suburbs. They've been called soccer moms. They've been called security moms. Pamela Wilk is a so-called soccer mom. Those so-called Walmart moms. She calls herself a hockey mom. I love those hockey moms. The hockey mom trying to connect with the soccer moms. In the 1990s, the idea of soccer moms as the quintessential swing voter took hold. Elections could be won or lost based on a candidate's ability to appeal to them. But were quote-unquote soccer moms actually the deciding factor? In a new series on the 538 Politics podcast, we take a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.